morning, everyone, uh, and welcome to Restoration. Uh, just so you know, this is not actually my classroom. Um, this is one of the English teacher's classrooms, but uh, it had better lighting and uh, was actually better decorated. So um, I figured I would come here today. Uh, it was great to be together in person last week with many of you. Great to see a bunch of new faces as well. Um, people who, I guess, have joined the church in the last year and a half. It was fun to meet you. For those of you that don't know me, my name is Randy McNeil, and uh, I get to serve on the preaching team at Restoration. Uh, my day job is as a Bible teacher uh, at a local uh, Christian school, and uh, I get to oversee a lot of the spiritual life aspects of the school as well. So I really enjoy my job, and I also really enjoy getting to be here speaking to you whenever I have the opportunity. Um, one of the reasons I enjoy getting to, or one of the reasons I don't enjoy, excuse me, preaching to you um, is because I've noticed that when I, when I, when I listen to a sermon uh, by Ryan or, or anyone else, um, I can kind of pick and choose what I want to hear out of it uh, and ignore some of the harder things. But when I'm preaching a sermon, I have to wrestle with um, the, the difficult sayings, the difficult things that, that God is, 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 is bringing up in my own life. Um, and so that's what this sermon is. It's me um, feeling like I don't measure up to what I'm about to say, um, which would make sense because we're actually talking about contentment. So spoiler alert, um, you know, even as I'm writing and finishing this, this sermon, I'm realizing I'm not content with, with, with how it is going to go. And it never would be. Right? I'm always going to want to do it better. I'd always want to take more time. And while I, I think it's okay to pursue excellence, it turns, if that excellence turns into obsession, um, it becomes prideful and arrogant and self-serving. And our aspirations become the goal rather than our focus being on Christ. You know, in, in this idea of, of, of tourists and pilgrims, I'm no stranger to the actual tourist world. Um, years ago, about 15 years ago, uh, I traveled to Europe with a bunch of college friends. And one of the things that we were told to do is to make sure that we didn't look like tourists. Um, and, and, and the main way we were told to do that is, is don't lead with your camera. It, you see, um, this was back before, um, you know, we had nice cameras on our cell phones, right? So you had the big cameras that you still went around. And, and what I noticed when we got to Rome is that's what everybody was doing. They were walking around with these cameras, leading with their cameras. They hid behind them. Um, and what was interesting about that is, is, is their scope of vision was limited to just what they could see through the lens. Years later, about seven years ago, uh, I went back to Rome and it had gotten worse because instead of people looking at that limited view through their cameras, they had turned the camera on themselves. Selfie sticks had been invented and rise in popularity. Phones were taking great photos and everybody saw the whole world through themselves putting themselves at the center of those pictures. And I think this process of, of, of tourism moving this way um, is very informative because tourism starts with a narrow focus, but eventually turns back on its subject. And it's the same with our faith journey, right? If we have a narrow focus in our faith journey, namely just our experience, um, eventually our faith is going to turn back in on ourself and be completely about us with all the selfishness and judgments and disconnection. So my hope today is to give you a bigger picture of what it could look like to widen our perspective in a way that actually would include others. Because even though it's messy, at least it can be messy together. 
Psalm 131 uh, is one of the shortest psalms. Uh, actually, Charles Spurgeon once said that it's one of the shortest psalms to read, but the longest to learn. And I told Mandy that I was going to read this NIV, in the NIV version, but sorry, um, really sorry, Ryan. Uh, I think the ESV <laughs> says it better, so I'm actually going to read it in the ESV version. Um, psalm 131 says this, O Lord, my, eye, my heart is not lifted up, my eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great or too marvelous for me, but I have calmed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. So let's start in verse 1. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up, my eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great or too marvelous for me. Have you ever noticed that tourists like going to the highest point somewhere? Right? They want the greatest vantage point. So they look down on everything. And it makes some great pictures because all the little messy details down below can't be seen from up high. Aspiration can be like that. The higher we go in our job, the harder it is to relate to those doing the more menial tasks. And it seems like many of us are chasing that next promotion where we can actually do less of the grunt work and more of the managing. There's some freedom and flexibility of schedule in advising rather than doing and be able to delegate the things that you don't want to do. But there's a subtle danger that we miss as we climb higher and higher. One author writes this, it's difficult to recognize pride as sin when it's held up on every side as a virtue, urged as profitable and rewarded as an achievement. What is described in scripture as basic sin, the sin of taking things into our own hands, being your own God, grabbing while you can get what you can, is now described as basic wisdom. Have you ever noticed when a supervisor leaves, there's a power grab? All of a sudden, people come from all over to try to grab a hold of a little bit more power than they had before. Sometimes it's subtle, right? Making decisions without running it by anyone. Sometimes it's overt, making demands that before were never in their scope to make. It's always interesting to me how no one recognizes that they do this, though they don't recognize that it, it actually comes from pride. Right? Many times these are good people, and they don't have malicious intent but they bought into the lie that the more power they have, the more peace or fulfillment they will also have. I think it's the opposite. At least it is for me, right? The last two times I've been promoted at work, I've not asked for it. I haven't sought the promotion. I didn't ever think it was gonna be better for me. And in, in, in fact, um, there are the parts of my job that I like the least are the ones where I have like more decision-making power. People often get hurt when they're left out of making decisions um, in our jobs. And I just don't understand that. When I get to work and somebody has made a decision that affects me, I'm grateful because I didn't have to think about it all night. But I'm also a helper by nature. Two on the Enneagram, if you're into any of that stuff. Um, and I'm most happy when I see and help others succeed. It's why I love my summer job. I work construction. Now, when it comes to education, I am the most educated person on the crew overall. You put them all combined, they don't compare to my education. 
But when it comes to construction, I'm the dumbest person on the job. And I don't mean that negatively. I just don't really know all that I am doing, right? It's, hey, can you move that pile from the backyard to the front yard? Actually, we're gonna need you to move it back to there. Hey, can you run to the store? We forgot to get such and such. Uh, or my favorite, hey, yeah, you're gonna have to crawl under the deck even though it's really muddy and, and hang all the joist hangers for us because they didn't get done. I don't mind, right? I love showing up, working with my hands, being told what to do, um, and just doing whatever is necessary. In fact, the whole crew actually runs that way, right? The owners of the company are the first ones to grab a broom at the end of the day. The whole project that we're working on, everybody just does what needs to be done at that amount of time. It doesn't matter your skill level, it doesn't matter your knowledge. If you're the one that's in the position to do it, you do it. And there's no competition. And I just think it's a much healthier model for working. And a better metaphor for what a pilgrim life is like rather than a tourist. We work together to get the job done, not mattering who is the highest point. Take this biblical example of construction. The Tower of Babel. In the Tower of Babel, the people gather together and they try to build this tower higher and higher and higher because they could be like God. And God sees what they're doing, sees that they're doing it without him, that it's all about the pride of their life, and says, I'm going to confuse them. I'm going to scatter them. The way God does this is by uh, changing all of their languages so they can't understand each other anymore. They scatter all over the world. And so what started in this like united front of, of, of pride um, to, to be better um, eventually ends with uh, them being scattered. The vision. But God is in the business of restoring, right? Which is where we get our church's name. And if you flip forward a few thousand years, God does just that. He restores this story after Jesus' ascension at the time of Pentecost. In Pentecost, the disciples start out divided and confused, not knowing what to do, how to, how to help. And the Holy Spirit comes upon them, tongues of fire come upon them, and they run out of the streets and they begin telling everybody about Jesus. And everybody that heard, heard in their own native language. This story is a great reversal. What started out as a desire to ascend and get better, to be God-like, ended in confusion um, and division amongst the people in Babel. But at Pentecost, it starts out with everybody being divided and confused and ends with everybody coming together, speaking the same word. One ended in everybody speaking different languages. One ended in everybody understanding in their own language. It's a great reversal. And I think this is the idea, and the idea here is, 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 is between divided and confused. If you actually looked at the Greek translation of these two stories, the words divided and confused are the same exact words in both stories. So there's a lot of connection here. Both these stories have the same end, right? Both end with nations being scattered, but there's one key difference. One, the scattering is forced by God. The other is chosen. I mean, what do you think? W would you rather be forced <laughs> to be scattered or would you rather choose it? 
like like any of you, I, I love the idea of free will that you know no one can tell me what I do or force me to do something because I make my own decisions. But there's many stories in the Bible that aren't that way, where God either guides or, or, or forces an outcome to happen. I, I had a professor who used to say this. He used to say, God loves you just the way you are. And God loves you too much to let you stay that way. You know, I found a great fulfillment, a lot of fulfillment in my life. Um, not from aspiration or wanting more, but from recognizing what I already have and being grateful for that. Right? In order to avoid a life chasing the next great thing or aspiring for more and more, I think we need to recognize the places in our life where we're already content. For me, it is my job. I have no aspiration of climbing higher up the ladder. In fact, if I could go down a few rungs, I'd really like that. So what about you? In what ways, where in your life, um, are you successful in not wanting to chase the next greatest thing? Verse 2. But I have calmed and quieted my soul, like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. It was interesting reading the commentaries on this verse. Um, I think they were written by men because I don't think they understand the process of weaning. Um, no, I know. I'm, I'm, I'm a dude too, so maybe I don't understand it um, nearly as well. But these, these, these dudes talked about how um, the weaning uh, of a child was when um, they had drank their full of milk um, and they could just rest and sleep in their mother's arms. That's not weaning. Weaning uh, is anything but a peaceful process, right? Um, because for us, it meant I moved down to the basement with my daughter in a pack and play. And whenever she woke up and cried, Mama, Mama, I walked in and I picked her up. She screamed at me because she didn't want me. And then I put her back down until she fell asleep and woke up. And I did this time and time again for at least two days. And every any time, like Aubrey, my wife, would go in to get her in the middle of the night, she'd smell the milk, and she'd realize what she was missing, and she would just scream, we'd have to start the process all over again. Weaning is the process of making a child not dependent on the mother's milk for nourishment. And that always comes with a lot of tears, sometimes even from the kid. A child who isn't weaned is like a tourist. They're only in it for themselves, right? St. Augustine actually used to point to babies as evidence of original sin because uh, when one child would see another child being nursed by, by the same wet nurse, um, they would be filled with rage because of their jealousy. This is the same attitude as a selfie stick, right? The whole experience is about them and getting what they need from it. A weaned child, on the other hand, is a child who's experienced significant loss, significant pain, felt abandoned at times, sometimes maybe even unloved. A weaned child is only satisfied being in a mother's arms because they no longer require the sustenance that they once received. They are now just comfortable resting uh, in the arms of the one who loves them. Pilgrims are like that. They've traveled hard, and when they rest, they do so contentedly. I think there are a lot of dangers to modern psychology, self-actualization, you do you, culture, live your own truth. 
Let's call it turning the camera on yourself. I mean, I have to ask, if it's true for you, but not true for me, can it really be true? I teach this concept to my students using the example of temperature. So three people walk into a room. One says, ah, oh, it's cold in here. The other says, ah, oh, it's hot in here. The other says, ah, oh, it's just right. Now, is it cold, hot, and just right all at the same time? No, because truth always excludes its opposite. That's true, right? What is true is that it's 70 degrees in the room. The temperature may feel cold or hot or just right, but it's all about how you feel. It doesn't mean it's truth for everyone. For truth to be true, it must be true in all circumstances. Otherwise, it's just a feeling or an interpretation or a preference or, well, wrong. But the lie that we've bought into is that whatever you feel is true. That lie is as old as time, right? It's the angel Lucifer attempting to take God's throne, Adam and Eve grasping for forbidden fruit. The only difference is that now our culture celebrates it. People often ask me, like, why don't we see the same spiritual oppression and attacks that the Bible talks about or we hear about in other cultures? And I go, well, maybe because the damage has already been done for us. We bought into this lie that aspiration, achievement, approval is something we need to grab at all costs. So we don't need to be attacked because we've already been lulled into submission of the spiritual powers of this world. Again, it is difficult to recognize pride as a sin when it is held up in every when it is held up on every side as a virtue, urged as profitable and rewarded as achievement. But we can't swing the other way on the pendulum. Right? Pride is pride, whether it's thinking too much of yourself or too little. The focus or obsession, really, is still turned inward on you. Whether it's overly affirming or overly degrading, that selfie stick is still turned on you, and that's pride. Right? So as a helper, someone who likes to help, um, I feel terrible when people help me. And I don't ask for help. And I have a hard time accepting it when it's, when it's, when it's forced upon me. But I'm also not that effective at helping people when I burn out, when I'm too tired or too sore to help. My pride makes me bitter at others because they're not helping as much as I am. Maybe you relate to this, but, but Aubrey and I started watching The Good Place um, this last year. Um, and there's a character named Chidi who's a philosopher. And Chidi, um, he's always, whenever he has to make a decision, he, he always argues both sides to the extent that he literally gets a stomach ache. He gets sick. From arguing this. So he's going on one of his rants um, about this, um, and Aubrey's laughing. I don't understand, right? Because what his decision is not even that funny. I'm like, what's so funny? Like, that's not that funny. And she looks at me and she goes, that's you. I mean, the truth hurts sometimes. And it was true. Right? Actually, when I make a purchase, I judge whether it's a good purchase based on how I feel. If I'm proud of it, then I know it's a bad decision. It was self-serving. But on the other hand, I feel disappointed, right? like I settled for something, then I can be at peace with myself. Right? And on the surface, maybe it sounds fine, uh, or at least better than the alternative, right? At least that's what I want to believe. But unfortunately, at the root of it is all how I feel, and I'm obsessed with my feeling bad about myself, because that's what I believe, errantly, of course, is better. But it's still pride, it's still self-focused, it's still doing things my way. 
And I know this because in the end, it's all about comparison, right? I must be better than those people because at least I feel bad about this. But comparisons are, are always, almost always sinful because it's either about pride or coveting. You see, God doesn't want us neurotically dependent on him, but willingly trustful in him. But there's things in our lives that it's difficult to trust God with. I wonder what that is for you. What is difficult in your life to give over to God? Right? What would it take for you to be comfortable in the arms of the one you love? What would it take for you to trust God 100%? Verse 3. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time and forevermore. Hope and commitment go hand in hand, right? We, we have hope in God. Um, we're like a weaned child who's content being held in the arms of the one who loves him or her. And I'm not content with this last point of my sermon. Uh, it's actually kind of hard for me to, to, to do this uh, because I'm a little bit of a perfectionist and I struggle with, with, with this aspect. But I was reminded in a book that I just read um, that the fact that something can be done better doesn't mean that it has to be. Right? One thing I learned from this book is that when I chase after being better and being um, perfect uh, and I re refuse to allow people to see my weakness, I actually harm them because they will begin to think that they can't show me their weakness. Actually, the rest of that quote is that when we graciously accept the messiness of imperfect people with imperfect lives, including our own, we receive blessing and we bless those around us. Jesus accepted people as they were, meeting them in their messiness, imperfection, and even wrong-headedness. So I'm going to borrow directly from a book um, called The Contented Soul. It's by Lisa McMinn. And rather than pretend I came up with these ideas on my own um, and, and create them into some fancy narrative, I'm just going to read a couple of quotes and then wonder aloud with you about what it would be like to live a more contented life. This is what she has to say about contented people. Contented people accept limits. They allow themselves to nap when they are weary, stay home when sick, be less productive than is possible, and respect human limitations. Contented people fast. We gain a stronger appreciation that we are finite when we fast from what we take for granted. Imagine. If we emerge from fasting, being mindful and even prayerful of the children and adults all around the world and in our city who go to bed hungry, hunger through the night, and wake up hungry through no choice of their own. Contented people, know that the secret to happiness is not getting more, but wanting less. Right? A capitalist economy depends on keep, keeping people discontented so that they will keep buying the new and improved products that drive a growing economy. Contented people know that when we stop striving for perfection, we become more gracious to ourselves and more gracious to others who live with us, who work with us, who call us friends. All too often, we bemoan our imperfections rather than embrace them 
as part of the process in which we are brought to God. So I wonder what area in your life that you'll practice contentment. But I wonder even more, how are you going to measure success without aspiring to it? I think for me it's the hardest thing to accept my own imperfections, um, especially around others, like without excuses. Right? I mean, think about it. When someone says, oh, you look cute today, and you respond with, oh, my hair is a mess, or, oh, yeah, I didn't have time to iron my shirt. You make them think, do, do they notice my hair? Do they notice my shirt? You see, when we're quick to point out all the imperfections in our own lives or make excuses for why we aren't perfect, we cause people to wonder if we notice their imperfections. It's like someone who always talks bad about people behind their back and you wonder, do they talk about me like that behind my back? Being content with our imperfections means accepting comments without belittling them, accepting compliments without belittling them, and not feeling the need to justify or excuse our imperfections. Perhaps this is why Paul says that Christ's power is made perfect in our weakness. Perhaps it is because when we choose to be content, other people are allowed into our lives, and division and confusion give way to unity. I hope you have some great conversations about what this could look like in your life. Uh, more than anything, um, I hope that you can find rest in contentment uh, without aspiring to it too much. Have a great one. I'll be praying for you today.